Our evening meditations on this old book of biblical history continue. We're going to pick up the speed a little bit tonight as I want to look at chapters 5 through 7 with you together. But to get us started, I want to read what really lies in so many ways at the center of these three chapters, something that comes at the end of chapter 6. So I'm just going to read verse 19 through 21 of chapter 6 and then pray for our time and And we'll begin together. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Once again, this is the word of the Lord for us this evening. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able? To stand before the Lord, this holy God. And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you are with us this evening by your word and spirit, and we pray that your spirit would illuminate our heart's attention and our mind's affection upon the truth as it's found in Jesus Christ, as this text points us to our Savior. Help us to see him in the fullness of his glory and his work as our only mediator, we pray in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The late theologian R.C. Sproul loved to tell stories about what he referred to as his two conversion stories. So when he was a freshman in college and he was converted to Jesus Christ, it came in the most surprising of ways, at least to young R.C. He was in kind of a common room, if I remember the story correctly, and one of his A fellow student called him over to this Bible study going on, and he said, Hey, R.C., read Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3, which just speaks about when a tree falls, whether it falls to the north or south, there it falls and there it lies. And Sproul said it was the Spirit's supernatural work through that obscure verse in Ecclesiastes that brought him to true faith in Jesus Christ. And he loved to later joke about surely how he was the only person that was ever brought to saving faith from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and a tree falling to the ground. But he would say that it was in that moment, as the Spirit so often does in these powerful acts of conversion, that he was fundamentally convinced that he was dead as a tree in his sin, and he needed the living power of Jesus Christ that he could cling to, of course, by faith alone. And that was his first conversion story. And then he talked about how a few years later, while still at university, he had this second conversion story that he loved to speak of as his conversion to God the Father. And he would talk about how he was in this college class, I think it was a philosophy class, and the Professor was lecturing on Augustine's view of creation and Augustine's passion even for God's holiness. And Sproul later wrote, he said, Suddenly I had a passion to know God the Father. I wanted to know him in his majesty, to know him in his power, and to know him in his august holiness. And it was that second conversion, as it were, to knowing God in his holiness that became a 
Central Point and Sproul's ministry, as many of you know, he later on wrote a classic book, best-selling book called The Holiness of God that became, in so many ways, this kind of central theme of his life's ministry and his heart's ambition to such a degree that when he was consulting with this man that had come to guide Ligonier Ministries in its early stage of trying to grow its influence, he said, R.C., what's the one thing that you want to teach non-Christians? And he said, that's easy. They don't know who God is. So, of course, he wants to teach them the truth about God. And then the consultant responded saying, okay, well, what do you want to teach Christians? He said, that's easy too. They don't know who God is. And it's true, even in according to our passage, as we're soon going to see, that one of the perennial needs of every generation is to know that God is holy. But as we'll see soon enough, to know that God is holy introduces a profound problem. With humanity who, of course, lies utterly unholy before a holy God. And so we left off last week in chapter 4. Some of you were with us and you might remember that the Philistines had come against the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel thought that they could use God in their own personal superstitions in religion as though they could control his presence. They could dictate where God goes and what God does. And so when the Philistines came against Israel... They brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle, thinking that it was that symbolic spiritual piece of furniture that would guarantee their victory over the Philistines. And they were altogether shocked and dismayed to discover not only that the Philistines defeated them, routing them to the tune of tens of thousands of dead Israelites, but the story went on to say that, of course, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant And so by the end of chapter 4, you had Phineas' wife, Eli's daughter-in-law, this house of Eli that had fallen in response to, of course, God's prophetic word as she kind of gives her last words after giving birth to a child whom she named Ichabod. She said, I've named him Ichabod because the glory is gone from Israel. The ark is gone The glory is gone. And where we pick up the story tonight in our three chapters is in many ways illustrating for us and telling us what happened to that ark over the ensuing months. And even by the time we get to chapter 7, the ensuing decades. And the central thought, and it's really a key question that I want to put before you tonight from our three chapters, is that question I read in chapter 6 verse 19. Or we're going to hear soon enough, these men ask the question of who can stand before the Lord, this holy God. Because I want to show you in the first two chapters, two kinds of people, we might say students, two categories of people that can't stand before the Lord. And then in chapter 7, we'll hear the positive answer of who actually can stand before the Lord. So who can stand before the Lord? That's the question we're wanting to ask and answer according to our text tonight. And The first thing we're going to see in chapter 5 is that no enemy idolater can stand before the Lord. So what's going on with the ark after this defeat of Israel in chapter 4? Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. We're told when the Philistines captured God's ark, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. And set it up beside Dagon. So kids, Dagon was this kind of chief deity in the pantheon of all the Philistine gods. And 
As you would perhaps expect, a religious people like the Philistines, pagan idolaters, religious people like the Philistines to do, they take this Ark of the Covenant representing Yahweh, the defeated God of Israel, and they bring it into Dagon's temple. And you'll notice, importantly, they set it beside Dagon. And what they're doing there in setting Yahweh beside Dagon, as it were, is illustrating two simple things, two idolatrous things even The first of which is Dagon's supremacy over Yahweh. They brought Yahweh into Dagon's temple. Like so many ancient Near Eastern cultures at the time, they would have seen this defeat of Israel in battle as containing not just military significance, but also spiritual significance. That the gods of Philistia were greater than the god of Israel. And so there is Yahweh placed next to Dagon to illustrate Dagon's supremacy over Yahweh. But it's also in all likelihood, probably illustrating Dagon's usability of Yahweh. Because as these were a polytheistic people that had many different gods in the land of the Philistines, yes, Dagon was supreme, they would have thought, but maybe Yahweh had some usability in the Philistine five-city government. And so the text would tell us, again, verse 2, they said it beside Dagon, just as a trusted servant stands beside the king. It's as though they put this new, trusted servant beside the kingly god of the Philistines. And of course, students, you ought to be able to know, I trust from your Old Testament scriptures, is that this doesn't go well for the Philistines to interact with Yahweh as though Dagon is supreme over him and can use him whenever he wants. Because you notice what happens the next day in verse 3. The people of Ashdod arose, and behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. You know, It's a story that actually is kind of laced with Old Testament humor, isn't it? In many ways, you have this, this god, Dagon, this, this idol illustrating the utter vanity of idols. It's as though the next morning they wake up and he's there face down on the ground saying, I've fallen and I can't get up. Somebody help me up. And the next day it's even worse. If you glance through verse 4, what you'll see is they find him the next day, again face downward on the ground before the Lord's ark, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Of course, the crushing of the head illustrates his defeat. The cutting off of his hands says he no longer has power, strength, or ability in the land in a way that, of course, everyone in Philistia would know is that Dagon has fallen before Yahweh, who really is the supreme God in the land, of course, the God of Israel. And to ensure that they understand the supremacy of Yahweh, the text goes on to tell us that in the ensuing months, Yahweh begins to afflict the land with all kinds of calamity. Notice verse 6 The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Of course, the people understand that something has gone wrong. We need to get this ark out of the land. As soon as it has come into our city, we need to get it out of our city, lest we fall before this God of Israel. And it's got them in such calamity. Look at the end of verse 11. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. This is one of the five large city-states in the land. The hand was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. 
Yahweh has come and is waging his spiritual war against the Philistines. And they are wanting to know, what do we do with this God? And of course, the right answer would be, turn from sin, repent of idolatry, believe in the Lord. But they're just desperate to get him out of town. And what they decide to do, these pagan priests among the Philistines, is to send him off with golden treasure. Look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 6. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. My kids, that might sound altogether strange for a guilt offering to travel back with the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. But it's actually quite uh, simple as you understand that the word for tumor in that original language, it can also mean fortified city. And here's a nation made up of five city-states and five surrounding areas. And so they're sending forth these five golden tumors and these five golden mice to represent the whole country of the Philistines, of the guilt of the land. And they want to send forth this golden treasure with the Ark of the Covenant so that God would leave them alone is the point. And significant, I think, for us is to recognize how the Philistines, they wanted peace from God, not peace with God. Peace from God insofar as just leave us alone. Here's the offering. Just just leave us alone. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And how many people today might be in a similar situation when the Lord's hand of judgment comes upon them and there might even be a sense of that the Lord has done it but there's no desire for reconciliation and restoration with God. It's just leave us alone. Whatever it takes, leave us alone so we don't have to do anything with you in which... Much better was, again, turning from the sin. And so what this is illustrating for us is that there's no enemy idolater that can stand before the Lord. And so what they end up doing is they have this kind of spiritual superstitious test attached to the ark. You'll see in the ensuing verses that the pagan priests decide, we're going to send the ark back into the promised land with these two cows pulling it along the way. And if they go straight into Israel, we'll know that this is Yahweh who has afflicted us. But if they just kind of go a different direction, we'll just chalk it up to mere coincidence that these things were going on after we brought the ark into the land. And look at verse 12 of chapter 6 to see what happens. The cows went straight. You need to see it. Straight. In a beeline in direction for Beth Shemesh, that's about 19 miles west of Jerusalem, along one highway, lowing as they went, and they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines, they went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. They wanted to know exactly what was going to happen. It's clear that Yahweh has done this to them. It's clear that no enemy, idolater, can stand before the Lord. And the back part of chapter 6 is going to tell us, secondly, no mere professor can stand before the Lord. And I'm using the language of professor here, students and children, not as though as a teacher in a university or college, but someone who merely professes faith in the Lord but doesn't truly follow him. Because you'll notice in verse 13, the ark shows up and the people of Beth Shemesh, they rejoiced to see it. But they're going to soon find out, just as the Philistines did, that the Lord's presence 
is a dangerous holiness in their midst. A dangerous holiness even for God's people in the promised land. And what ensues has always reminded me of this somewhat well-known scene, isn't it, in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that story where you have you know, the Pevensey children, they're in the magical land of Narnia, and they hear from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver that Aslan is on the move. And uh, Lucy asks the beavers, well, Aslan, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver responds by saying, with all the kind of shock and awe and dignity that was offended by the thought of Aslan being a man, he says, no, he's the king, I tell you. And he begins to wax eloquent of his power and his strength, this lion king of of Narnia. And then Lucy's older sister, Susan, she responds, well, I always thought about him as a man. But I should think that it's a little bit scary to meet this lion. Is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver responds, Well, make no mistake, my dear, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, we've never heard of one. If there's anyone who can stand before the Lord without fear, well, the text will tell us, is there such a one? Because you see what happens, look at the end actually of chapter 9, where we started our reading a few minutes ago, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 19, Yahweh struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. goes on to say, actually, there in our ESV translation, he struck 70 of the men. You could actually read that in Hebrew in such a way that it's much more than 70 men that died, hence the end of the verse, has uh, the people mourning because the Lord had struck them with such a great blow. And so you want to ask the, child, the question, children, why is it, that Yahweh has struck his people dead. Well, you look at verse 14. They begin the problems by sacrificing cows to the Lord when God's law in the Old Testament required the sacrifice of bulls. So they give the female cow instead of the male bull against God's law. And in verse 15, you'll notice that they parade the ark for all to see when the Old Testament law said it was to be hidden, it was to be laid aside out of view. And then what you'll notice all the way down in verse 19, that again, some people looked into the ark of the Lord. It's as though they hadn't heard that story of the nation of Israel crossing into the promised land years ago and people mishandling the ark of the covenant and For that mishandling, they were struck dead. They are different than enemy idolaters, but they still can't stand before the Lord because they're simply doing what they want to do with God is what you're meant to see in chapter 6. We can set them up for all to see. We can touch them. We can look into the Ark of the Covenant. We can do whatever we want in offering sacrifices to the Lord when in reality, of course, the Lord defines how he's approached. The Lord defines how he relates to People, these kind of enemy idolaters, mere professors, well, they can't stand before the Lord. So who can stand before the Lord? Well, that comes in chapter 7. We find that just like the Philistines, these people in Beth Shemesh, they want to get the Ark of the Covenant out of the land as fast as possible. So they send it to Kiriath-Jerim, you'll notice, at the beginning of chapter 7. And they do much better right from the offing. They take the Ark, you'll notice verse 1 of chapter 7 of the Lord. They take it and brought it into the house of Abinadab, and they put it on a hill there where he lived. And 
they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And you'll notice that it stays there, verse 2 tells us, some 20 years. Two decades passed. And then, I think that's how we're meant to understand the back part of verse 2, then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. We don't know what God's priestly prophet Samuel had been doing for the last 20 years. The text is altogether silent with his ministry. But he blasts back onto the scene here in chapter 7. And Samuel blasts forth, you'll notice, in verse 3, this clear declaration, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So it's a clear direction to the nation of Israel, a clear direction about who can stand before the Lord. No enemy idolater can stand before the Lord, no mere professor can stand before the Lord, but a repentant believer can stand before the Lord. Because there's two simple things that I just want to close with tonight from chapter 7. Characteristics of those who stand confident, assured, saved before the Lord. The first is that those who stand before the Lord turn from their sin. Because you notice that again, what does Samuel emphasize? But repentance in verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the gods and direct your heart to the Lord, serving Him only. You know, kids, if you've been here any length of time at Redeemer, you're growing up in a church that does talk about repentance and your need to repent of sin in order that you might stand before the Lord. And it's a big word that simply illustrates, actually at its core, the idea of turning, or it speaks of the idea of of turning. You turn from sin, you turn to the Lord. You turn away from that path of destruction and you turn toward that path of life. And I wonder what parts of your life, what parts of your heart, what parts of your soul need repenting of tonight. Where do you need to turn from something that deserves God's judgment and turn unto the Lord Jesus and the fullness of his mercy and grace, and you'll see what happens in verse 4. They turned, didn't they? They put away the bales and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And then what it comes in the next few verses, they kind of have this fasting and prayer service with Samuel leading. The Philistines hear what's going on, and they say, hey, this is a good time to come up and battle once again against the, Philist- um, against the Israelites, and let's crush them all over again 20 years later. But this time around, Israel does right. They don't try to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. What they end up doing is calling upon the Lord's servant to be with them in the battle. Because you'll notice what they say in verse 8. Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of of the Philistines. And then in verse 9, he offers a genuine sacrifice, blood sacrifice. He also offers the sacrifice of prayer. And the Lord listens to Samuel's prayers 
and the Philistines are saved. He famously, after the defeat, I'm sorry, the Israelites are saved, and famously, after the defeat of the Philistines, he takes this rock, he names it Ebenezer, this rock of remembrance of the Lord's power for his people. And look at what we're told in verse 13. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And there is such joy in Israel, the end of 14 tells us there was peace. Also between Israel and the Amorites. Who can stand before the Lord? Repentant believers. Who are repentant believers? Those who turn from their sin. But it's not just that. What you need to see illustrated here in type and shadow is secondly and finally is that repentant believers are those who trust in God's appointed mediator. Because it's a rather interesting thing, the way that actually chapter 7 speaks about Samuel's ministry there in Israel. It's as though he kind of takes the place not just of the Ark of the Covenant in battle, but he functions in some ways as his own kind of Ark of the Lord's presence. Because just as the Ark contained the law, it's Samuel that delivers the Lord's word to his people. Just as the Ark moved from place to place, notice what we're told in verse 15 and 16, he went on this place to place, circuit of judgment all around Israel, all the days of his life. And the point is, just as the ark was the mediator of God's presence to Israel, so is Samuel in a God-ordained and appointed way, a mediator of God's word, a mediator of God's presence towards his people And I hope you're the kind of reader that can't help but hear that in type and shadow and not have your mind race to Jesus Christ. Because who can stand before the Lord but those who turn from their sin and trust in God's appointed mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course, he doesn't just merely deliver God's word to us. He is God's word. He doesn't merely just bring us God's presence. He is God's A presence being found in this trusted mediator means victory has come. Sin, Satan, and death are there no more. And so the call of this text is quite simple, isn't it? It's that gospel call that you find from Genesis to Revelation. Who can stand before a holy God? No enemy idolater. No mere professor of religion and faith. Only repentant believers. And may you be such a one who's turned from sin and trusted in God's appointed mediator. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have given to us your one and only beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That he is our Emmanuel, that he is God with us, and we pray that we would know him even this day evermore in the fullness of the glory, that light of the knowledge of your glory that shines forth in his face, that we might love him, that we might trust him, that we might stand in him. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.